I've come to the conclusion that um, a medical degree doesn't protect you from having um, the ability to carry out evil acts. Why should it? We're, you, there is no, I, I would say there's no human immune from that potential. Uh, I, I think for those of us involved in caring professions, you have to assume that it can all fall apart. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Martin Elliott, Provost of Gresham College and Emeritus Professor of Paediatric Cardiothoracic Surgery at University College London. Martin worked in child heart surgery at Great Ormond Street Hospital for over 30 years and has taught and operated internationally. He was part of the China Tribunal considering evidence of forced organ harvesting in Chinese detention camps. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Professor Martin Elliott, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a rather humbling title, so I feel a bit weird doing it. <laughs> you spent um, most of your career working on, on um, child heart surgery, including 30 years at the world-renowned Great Ormond Street Hospital. Uh, what kind of qualities does a good uh, paediatric surgeon have? I, I think the first thing is you have to, stupidly, really want to do it. Um, it requires such an enormous commitment both in time and energy and emotion but as far as qualities goes I mean I think the most important thing is you have to feel technically comfortable with operating on very small things a baby's heart's about the size of a walnut and you're operating on the inside of it deep in a hole and against a time limit but the, and you also have to have a grasp of three dimensions um, in something that's going to be moving and growing in a few years time uh, and therefore a deep understanding of how the heart works, of how it's going to change by what you're doing in the heart. So it's a mixture of an intellectual ability to see things in three dimensions, a technical, physical suitedness of your fingers to the job. And then I think um, an emotional connection with the job and that you realize you're operating on somebody's baby and that that baby is going to grow up into an adult. And so you've got a sort of prolonged responsibility which you never lose. I think before I, I kind of looked into you, I thought you can have one excellent surgeon who does everything. But after researching, I thought maybe it's more of a team. Oh, God, yeah. You can't, I mean, it's a pretty well of all of the uh, disciplines. It's so utterly dependent on a team. The surgeon may, at that particular moment of care, be crucial to the, to the procedure. But there's been a whole long string of team working up a diagnosis big discussions about what to do and in the operating room you know up to 29 30 people mm. can be engaged in looking after that child for the few hours that is in there then you're also deeply engaged in intensive care and the later care in the hospital so um no i mean you may be you you're one tiny fraction of the child's life but a whole team is engaged in doing it and the decisions don't work with one person they can't, you can't do it with one person it's impossible on the Gresham College website, you have a video where you have interviews with child heart surgeons worldwide, mm. and they're talking about how they feel to, to do this work. Uh, it's an incredible video. I, I recommend our viewers to go and watch it. But I'd like to kind of turn it around on you, the, the interviewer. How does it feel to hold a baby's heart in your hands? Um, I, I think you, it's that, the answer to that for me is in two parts. So it's the first time, which is utterly terrifying. Mm. Uh, you suddenly realise that you are responsible and you are 
accountable, which is kind of added responsibility you probably didn't think of at the beginning. But um, once you've got used to what you're doing, once you're um, able to do it, should I say able to do it because you're, you're learning as you go, um, then it becomes a mixture of a technical challenge and an ever in, uh, and a desire ever every day to do it better and better. So the feeling or the emotional feeling is sort of sublimated against the quality that you want to deliver. I've never met a cardiac surgeon who, who doesn't want to do what they do better the next day. It's just an unbelievably internally competitive and between people competitive specialty. And we're always trying really, really hard to do that next operation better than we did the last one. I suspect that most of us maybe feel we've done one operation perfectly in our lifetime, maybe maybe a year or so, and everything else is just not quite right. You can do it better. It's hard to imagine a job with more extreme polar opposites every day or saving babies or losing babies and then you have to talk to families and give them a, a piece of news that's either the best or worst news they, they're ever going to hear. How do you deal with the, the impact of this kind of emotional work? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's changed massively during my working career. So when I started it was, as you described, there were several babies used to die one in, you know, in the care. The mortality was probably around 10 to 20 percent in the year or so that I started. And now, um, in the current era, it's you'd expect a mortality in most good units of less than 1%. So it, seeing a baby die is rare. Um, seeing a baby very unwell is not so rare, unfortunately. But it, it, in those early days, you did have to get back on the horse the next day. And um, there was another baby to treat. And you had to suppress that um, terrible feeling of upset and guilt and all the rest of it that you, you can imagine anyone feeling. I personally didn't really enjoy doing surgery unless I knew the family or the child reasonably well before I started. But there are many surgeons who have to push that relationship away in order to be able to operate on the child. They prefer not to know the family very well, not to know the child very well. So, so that they you would, don't get that connection. You you would get to know the child before the operation. As, as much as time would allow, right. I tried to, uh, and it mattered to me because I think you you need to have that deep care about what the outcome will be to do your best work. In two thousand and nine, you you lost your younger son Toby mm. to uh, epilepsy. Well, what impact did that have on you and your work? Well. It was, um, he died of something called sudden death in epilepsy, which I, I must say I'd never heard of, and we didn't know he had epilepsy. Um, he died at home. Um, essentially woke up dead, if you like, and my wife found him. Uh, it was um, utterly dreadful, of course. I mean, you never, ever, still haven't got used to it. But the impact at work was that I found it very difficult to um, do the same work. And, uh, I mean, you'll know you work in a studio like this in a small team, you know everybody quite well and you care about them. And I found it quite hard to work in that team, the team we just discussed, um, and, and be normal. I found it really difficult. Uh, fortunately, um, the chairman of my hospital at the time was um, Tessa Blackstone, a former Secretary of State for Education, 
and, and Jane Collins, who's the chief executive, two very strong women. Um, but they were incredibly supportive, gave me enough time off. And when I came back, essentially made it possible for me to work in different roles. So I moved, I still operated, but less. And on the things that I, be, I had to become really necessary for, which was rebuilding tracheas in small babies. And I built a team to do that. And I didn't do much of the other stuff, less and less cardiac surgery. And I became medical director of the hospital. So I sort of had bigger problems in some ways, you know, management mm. problems. Um, but with people I had not built up such a long, close relationship with as I had with the team, and it, I found that the easiest way to cope with it. Um, everybody reacts differently to those issues. Men certainly different from women. Mm. Male men tend to throw themselves at work and sport and women on their friends. And it takes a long time for men to learn to talk to their friends, and it has taken me over a decade to really get that dialogue going. Um, and there is no doubt that one is different afterwards. Um, and something that therefore, when you look back at all the people you've treated, you realize what those families have been going through with even greater intensity, if you like. You've worked in this field for decades. You must have seen some quite sizable changes. What were the changes that made the biggest difference to the lives of the babies that you care for? Well, I think probably, first of all, a deeper understanding of the morphology of the heart and its physiology. Um, and that largely has come about by a simultaneous um, development in, in a variety of technologies. First of all, I mean, when I started, there were no computers, so you can imagine it was kind of, you know, people didn't have them around the offices. There were no networks. Um, we made diagnosis with stethoscopes. And, and very quickly, ultrasound came in, so you could just put a probe on the chest and take a two-dimensional, snowstormy picture of what was going on. But it was always projected the wrong way around. Um, it was done for the convenience of the operator, not for the convenience of the surgeon. So we were then reconstructing these 2D images in three dimensions in our mind when we got into the operating room. Then that changed into three-dimensional imaging. Mm -hmm. Then came along um, MRI. MRI now allows us to image in real time change the colors, monitor the flow. Um, all the monitoring on the ICU wasn't available. Syringe pumps weren't available. So everything has become more precise, more accurate, better understood. It's entirely technology dependent. Um, and going along with that, there's a simultaneous development in materials science. So going down from simple things like needles got harder and sharper, so they were easy to put through things and didn't bleed afterwards. Quality of suture material, patches, um, deeper understanding of ev almost everything in medicine and now genetics which really wasn't really taught when I was at medical school very well Mendel was about as far as he got and now everything is dependent on what the genome tells us as we move into the next generation I can see this huge shift in um, the importance of AI and development of further development of technology um, it's, it's just that parallel development in everything. Um, and I suppose final thing that's made a difference is absolutely free communication across the globe. Yeah. And with that, um, a desire for something I've become very passionate about, which is transparency. So we spent 25 years trying to describe what was wrong with the heart in technical computer language. 
3,700 or so things that can be wrong with your heart when you're born, a couple of thousand things that we can do to fix it, you know, fragments of things. So each of those has a code, so now we can communicate with you if you're a cardiac surgeon in San Francisco or Beijing or anywhere else in order to compare our results. And what matters is that we are using the same language and reporting our results transparently so that the public, other doctors, can see that we're telling the truth to ourselves, to each other, and then to the public. If we do that, then the key element of medicine, which is trust, is maintained. As soon as you start not exposing your results to public scrutiny, uh, quality drops, and you lose the relationship between your, your patients and yourself. Have these changes um, translated into more babies being saved from when you started your career? Yeah, oh, no, unquestionably. Yeah. I mean, the whole group of things. So as I said, the, the mortality is now less than 1% mm -hmm. in the best units from 20 or 30. I mean, when the heart-lung machine was invented in 1952, and the mortality at that stage was over 80%. Right. So that's the rate of change, wow. 70 years. It's almost it's, it's very bad. I mean, sadly, people do still die. Some things we haven't cracked how to treat. And some things require multiple operations over the child's life. So, you know, they, it's not just that you can get them through that one operation. You've got to think about this consequential care over life. It's not a curative thing. You're, you're creating, you know, the, the heart isn't normal when you're fixing it. You're trying to put it so it can be roughly normal mm -hmm. and then hoping that with maybe further interventions over time you can improve its function and it gets so specific at that point it's not worth going into but you can imagine that these range of procedures um, all have contributed to better quality of life. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic uh, some Formula One racing teams got involved in ventilator components but that wasn't the first time F1 have got involved in healthcare back in the mid-2000s you worked with some pit stop teams yeah. at Great Ormond Street can you tell us a bit about what happened and what you learned from these high-performance teams? Um, so it, it goes back to a problem that happened in Bristol, where there was a high mortality for congenital heart disease. And in the inquiry that followed, it was noted that the journey from the operating room to the intensive care unit uh, was quite dangerous. I mean, babies became very sick and some died. Um, and it, then people looked at other units around the country and realised the same thing happened everywhere. Uh, and one day we'd been operating all night um, and uh, the Spanish Grand Prix came on the TV and there was an aerial shot of a pitch stop. And suddenly we looked at this and thought, oh, this is just the same as our precious babies, their precious car and driver, with lots of people doing specific tasks. So when you would disconnect the baby in the operating room, put it on a trolley, move it down the corridor, take it to the intensive care unit, you've got one team who'd probably knackered and would rather go to the pub, and another team who was thinking, God, it's going to be an awful night looking after this baby, and then all the physical stuff you have to do to disconnect, reconnect, and move down the corridor. Mm -hmm. So you've got a tired team and a worried team, a lot of knowledge about the way the baby works, and all of these physical tasks to undertake. And just that picture from above, it looked like a pit stop. So my um, South African colleague, Alan Goldman, rang them up, rang up McLaren in the pits, and which wouldn't happen now, I don't think, anyway. Um, Ron Dennis came to see us very shortly afterwards and said, we can sort this out for you and try to engineer a solution. That didn't work 
particularly well because the NHS wouldn't buy all the stuff we needed. Um, and so my predecessor at Great Ormond Street, a brilliant surgeon called Mark de Laval, um, and um, managed to engineer a grant uh, with um, a, a chap called Ken Catchpole and others. And um, we got a grant with Ferrari and then didn't look at the mechanics of it so much as how humans interacted, the human factors. And by just changing the way that information was transferred and the discipline of who did what task of connecting this baby up to all the monitoring and at what time where we all stood, um, it was a four times reduction in error rate. And it rapidly became um, very trendy, first of all. It was very reproducible in other units, so it got copied became a standard of care and still is. I mean, there are articles still being published about it now, 20, almost 20 years later. Um, so it, it was really a deep understanding of human factors. And that was Mark de Laval, my predecessor, worked very closely with James Reason, who is the professor of organizational psychology in Manchester, done a lot of work in the airline industry as well. So we worked with them, Formula One teams, all about using human factors to modify behavior and make it safer amazing how important that was when we'd all been concentrating on the technology and the technique just suddenly realized there's so much more about where humans need to relate to each other in 2016 you were invited to join the china tribunal um the, the decision came out in 2020 yeah. could you tell us a bit about what this tribunal was about and why you agreed to yeah. join it at the time i was professor of physic professor of medicine at gresham college and one of the um, professors of law there, the professor of law, was Sir Geoffrey Nice, who had prosecuted Slobodan Milosevic at the International Court of Human Rights in The Hague. And he'd been asked for a legal opinion by an NGO called End Transplant Abuse in China to um, say whether or not there was any legal action that could be taken against um, either the country or the Communist Party or um, individuals associated with this story. And I must say, when I first thought, I heard the story that people were being killed for their organs in uh, detention camps, I thought this is just cannot be true. It's the 21st century, that sort of stuff can't go on. No, no doctor in, would do that. Your doctor would have to take the organs out, doctor would have to put them in. Transplantation requires you to know everything about the donor and everything about the recipient to provide safe care, and to go back to my point about transparency, that information should be freely available. So we thought any, any country doing transplantation must have that information available mm. anyway. So um, having decided that a legal opinion was no good, he thought we should set up a people's tribunal similar to that, which had been established by Jean-Paul Sartre and Bertrand Russell to the Vietnam War in the 1960s. So you... It, the principle of which is that lay people or non-technical people presented with a body of evidence have the ability to decide whether that evidence is robust and can then make a judgment on that evidence which they can report. And then rather than campaigning on behalf of a particular topic, you lay that judgment out and other people can use it as they want to influence NGOs, governments and so on. So that was the principle. The practice was that we read evidence for a year from those people who had gathered evidence from uh, uh, within and without China about this story. 
and we uh, then took oral evidence from people who had somehow got out of China or knew people in China and experts in the field. And at the end of that, we convinced, we were convinced beyond reasonable doubt that um, organ harvesting had been carried out at Chinese detention camps, probably still was, although the evidence was a little less clear. They'd broken nine of the 10 Rome statutes um, of human rights. Um, and the only one that we could not agree on for legal reasons was genocide. And I mean, there, were, there would of course always be argument in the law, because it's such a complicated law, genocide. Mm. Um, and that was the, the decision. And, and since that time, the judgment has been there and has been used by governments and others. Um, and um, essentially, the findings have not been challenged. You kind of are undertaking these uh, child heart surgery operations as, as part of your daily work. And then to read through all this evidence of people doing what you do, um, but for kind of quite evil means, must have been an eye-opener. Well, I mean, it's shocking, but actually it made me read a lot about the role of um, of doctors in, uh, if you like, crimes against humanity of various kinds. Mm. And we've been involved from the start. You know, you have to go back many centuries, but certainly from the Spanish Inquisition. The tortures were designed by doctors. Doctors were in, employed to see if someone was fit for the next day's torture. Same thing happened all the way through the Second World War, Japan and uh, Mengele and the, and the camps, as we all know, um, and right up to Abu Ghraib. The latest CIA report from the Abu Ghraib prisons shows that doctors were directly involved in, in starting and stopping torture, deciding whether someone was fit for the next days, and in the design of some of the tortures. Um, I, I've, I've come to the conclusion that um, a medical degree doesn't protect you from having um, the ability to carry out evil acts, why should it? We're, you, there is no, I, I would say there's no human immune from that potential. Uh, I, I think for those of us involved in caring professions, you have to assume that it can all fall apart. And um, as, I mean, you see the degradation of human behavior as soon as a war starts, like in Ukraine and Russia at the moment, both sides are almost certainly involved in some torture dysfunction at the margins. But it, 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 it's, it, humans have this, this ability to degenerate. The camps worry me, though, because it's, if you think of, of detention camps in any country, as I'm not specifically talking about China, but it could be anywhere, where people are taken off the streets, put in detention camps without charge, held there for long periods of time, how fundamentally different is that as a form of evil from the other extreme where it's genocide because you have degraded their humanity so much by placing them in detention mm. that the rest is just one tiny steps towards the very bad things. And each day it's easier to do the bad thing. I think I felt by the time I'd finished all that. So um, the, the long answer to your question, but I, I think... Um, Humans are very capable of bad behavior. And going back to my earlier point about my surgical results, I believe very strongly that uh, as much transparency as possible about all the data to do with all of this stuff uh, is, is the best way we can deal with it. 
because eventually um, countries, courts, the law can catch up with it. It may take a long time, but these people, people doing bad things eventually get caught. So is it the case that there were the number of transplants happening in China didn't really match up with yeah. what, what medical uh, conditions that, would allow? Uh, yeah, so there was a mismatch between the numbers of registered donors and the numbers of transplants done. Right. And there was a complete, uh, extraordinary difference between the t waiting time for a transplant in China and the waiting time for a transplant in the rest of the world. So we might wait, let's say, one to two years for a kidney or a bit of a liver. Um, and a, a bit less for a heart, but quite a long time. I mean, they were doing them the following week, almost on demand. Well, I mean, you would have to have, to make that function, there had to be a pool of available donors, um, which was one of the uh, things that we reported in our tribunal. So you're now the provost at you know, Gresham College, which has been providing free public education since 1597, which yeah. is quite impressive. Um, not just medicine, but also arts, the sciences. Yeah. What inspired you to move from your medical profession into a wider educational role? Um, well, again, it was in that period after Toby died and I'd been managing a hospital for a while. And I sort of, that was probably the only job that you know, I've advertised, you know, certainly the only job I've seen advertised in a newspaper that I've ever applied for, because in medicine you move around in your own world. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was in the paper, and I thought, that looks like a cool job. I, and I became professor of physics. You have to give 18 lectures a year, sorry, six lectures a year for three years, and then maybe another year. So I did 24 in all. And uh, they're an hour-long lecture, and to the public, the real public, people, you know, you can sit, turn up at the hall, and you have no idea who's coming. And it's broadcast live and streamed, and the archive, as you mentioned, is available uh, at gresham.ac.uk, so it's online for anyone to catch up on. Um, and the opportunity to talk about what you do and the edges of what you do to the real public is a privilege that very few people get. And that was what turned me on to do it. And when the last provost left in August, I was asked if I'd have a go at it. So I now get this massive privilege of being able to choose the next professors for the next three-year cycle. And, um, you know, mostly in our world, you choose within people in your own university or your own hospital. And I have the privilege of choosing them from all of the universities in the UK and, in fact, from many other countries. The best speaker, the, most, the best communicator, the most interesting contact, and the, maybe sometimes the most controversial. So we've got lots of things that you can choose um, to liven up our content. And we, we want to change it. We want it to, you know, as, as technology changes, you want it to be better. And the lockdown has um, made us have a much bigger international digital audience than we had when it was just a few people in a lecture theatre in London. And now it's global, hundreds of thousands of people watching it. So working in journalism, it seems every day you kind of have to become a minor expert in different issues. It feels like maybe you've had to kind of adopt a similar way, moving yeah. just out of medicine into various... I once read a quote from a um, philosopher called Stephen Toomin. Somebody asked him how he'd done so well, how he'd got to the top of his profession, and he said, hanging around smart people. And I think the best lesson of someone in my job is that 
everybody else is smarter than you. You just have to ask somebody. <laughs> They'll know how to do it. That's Martin Elliott. Thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a great pleasure.